Hello and welcome to Green Minds, the student-led podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. I'm your host, Lorenzo, and today we're bringing you a COP28 special episode. So as a lot of you will know, COP28 is taking place from the end of November to the middle of December in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, and in fact might have already started by the time uh, this episode is released. And to mark the, the really important summit, we spoke to Josue Tanaka. Uh, now, Josue has a very interesting career. He joined the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We refer to it as the EBRD regularly in the interview. He joined the bank at its inception in 1991 and was the managing director responsible for the operational strategy and planning function and for leading the bank's energy efficiency and climate change activities between 2006 and 2020. And under his leadership, green finance really skyrocketed. It reached 46% of total EBRD investment in 2019, with cumulative EBRD green finance uh, between 2006 and 2019 reaching over 42 billion US dollars across around 2,000 climate change mitigation and adaptation projects a total project value of over 260 billion US dollars. And prior to that, Josue was at the World Bank, where he was working as a special assistant to the president. And he worked in various positions on strategic planning. And you'll hear in the episode that he talks a bit about some of the projects he worked on in tropical forest conservation in Madagascar and development of the environmental program for the Mediterranean. He's now Honorary Senior Fellow in Climate Finance at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London and has been teaching students on Imperial's climate change management and finance programme since it began in 2016. And listeners who are part of the Class of 2024 programme can look forward to uh, his climate finance module starting in the new year. And he's also a visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics and a principal finance advisor at C4 Cities. So an incredibly decorated CV. And it was an incredibly fascinating interview. We covered a range of topics. So started with his early career working in the Brazilian Urban Transport Agency and World Bank, his leading role in increasing the EBRD spending on climate finance, uh, his experience of COPs and how they've evolved over the years. And then we also had a discussion on the Finance for Climate Action report, which he was involved in uh, developing. And he also gave us an insight into next steps for the report and the high-level expert group that he is a part of. Uh, so it's a great episode. It's, it's very interesting. I found him to be a, a really solutions-driven person who really had some clear ideas on how to tackle some of the existing issues when it comes to ramping up climate finance. And you'll see at the end that he also has some great career advice for listeners on the CCMF programme and anyone else considering a career working on tackling climate change. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And without further ado, here is the interview with Josue. Josue, it's uh, fantastic to have you on the Green Minds podcast. Thank you very much for uh, offering your time. So you've devoted uh, the large part of your career to climate finance and you've worked in some of the most important multilateral development banks, including uh, the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Uh, and I wanted to start the conversation with finding out a bit more about what your influences were in your early life and your early career, which made you want to work on, on tackling climate change and specifically working on climate finance. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, great. Well, first of all, thank you for um, having me on. And uh, it's really 
you know, I would say a pleasure and very motivating, in fact, you know, to be able to share these thoughts uh, with you. So look, um, I would say like many things in life, um, I got uh, into, um, you know, this activity on climate and climate finance in particular uh, through what I would call uh, a path that was not really linear, but in which, you know, there was really a recurrent theme, you know, when I look backwards, you know, at all these decades, I, I noticed that there was really a continuous focus de facto on the environment and finance. So what do I mean by this is that really my early interest was really in urban transportation, right? But particularly public transportation, because at the time, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, you had quite a focus uh, already, for example, on issues like air pollution, you know, and you also had the energy crisis. So you also had some concerns also about energy and the use of energy. So that was, I would say, my original uh, interest, right? But then, you know, by uh, the way, you know, my work evolved, I really had the opportunity to work on many different types of environmental issues, including, for example, you know, almost at the opposite of perhaps urban transportation, tropical forest protection in Madagascar. So I worked, for example, on the first World Bank project uh, on this. I worked on something called the environmental program for the Mediterranean. So that really looked a lot into water management, industrial pollution, marine reserves, you know, coastal zone management. Then, you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, you mentioned the EBRD, you know, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Well, then the job became, okay, how to address, you know, the environmental issues that you had, you know, in Eastern Europe at the time. And then about 20 years ago, the idea came to start, if you want, a climate action oriented activity within the bank, right, within the EBRD. And uh, the idea there was, I guess, you know, one, an increasing awareness about the issue, but also an answer on how do I use, you know, all these different experiences, you know, that I have, you know, to a bigger purpose. And I would say that that was really, you know, what drove the focus, if you want, on, on climate action, initially on energy efficiency, and then growing over time, you know, to the full set, you know, of activities. And I would say also that, you know, um, starting with a bank that really, you know, had done some environmental financing to a bank in which green finance, by the time I left, uh, accounted for over half of its annual investment level. And you mentioned uh, your, your experience at the World Bank. You mentioned some of the environmental programs that you were involved in, in places like Madagascar and, and the Mediterranean. So I was reading online that your role at the World Bank was working as an advisor to its, its then president, Barbara Conable, who I understand had previously been a US congressman. And I read that one of his legacies at the World Bank was that he was starting to incorporate some of these environmental factors into the way the bank was thinking. And I also read, interestingly, that as a congressman, he refused to accept personal contributions larger than $50 which I think is quite a, a unique approach to, to US politics. I was wondering, what was it like to, to work with him at the bank? And how did that experience shape your views on development finance and, and the role of multilateralism and multilateral development banks in facilitating development finance? Well, first of all, Lorenzo, I have to congratulate you on your uh, preparedness, you know, because clearly you've done quite a lot of homework to even get 
to the estimate of $50. But in, indeed, you know, he, he was very much a breed of a particular type of uh, Republican that, uh, okay, we're not going to get into politics, uh, but of a particular profile, right? And it is true uh, that, you know, to a certain extent, you know, he was the first World Bank president with, I would say, a genuine personal interest and commitment, you know, to environmental issues. Suffice it to say that one of his, uh, you know, happiest moments, I remember when he came back from his constituency, you know, in uh, upstate New York, was always to show his hands and show the dirt, you know, under, you know, his nails, because one of his, you know, I think happiest uh, activities was actually dealing with his apple orchard, right? And, um, you know, so what I mean to say is that it was really a kind of, you know, environmentalism really based on very deep personal, you know, uh, experience. And then, you know, he, um, within that, managed, you know, to start, you know, asking the questions, putting the procedures, you know, that were later on developed in terms of having, for example, an environmental department, you know, in the bank. And over time, for example, you know, being, you know, starting the work, for example, on the global environment facility and everything that followed, you know, uh, later on. Interesting to hear the personal reflections behind such an important figure in the history of the World Bank. And I'm wondering that experience of, of working with Congressman Conable at the World Bank, you know, you then shortly after moved to uh, the EBRD, I think around its inception in 1991. And you mentioned just now that the EBRD sort of went on this journey from having elements of environmental finance embedded in, in the bank to a place where I think it's nearly nearly 50 percent. I think it's 46 percent of the, the EBRD's investments were in green finance uh, around 2019-2020 when, when you left the bank. Um, could you tell us more about what the bank's journey was from environmental finance, not necessarily being a priority all the way to a place where half of its financing was towards green finance and what sort of inspirations did you take from your experience at the World Bank to try and get green finance embedded into the organization? Yeah look I would say uh, to you that um, uh, first an important observation which was at its time meaning in 1991 right DBRD was in a way you know the first quote unquote, new, and uh, sometimes people use the word modern, you know, multilateral development banks. And one element of its quote unquote modern mandate was that for the first time, the environment was embedded in its core mandate, right? It was not an activity, if you want, that you did in the context of the project, etc. but it was really something that was, you know, embedded, you know, in the articles you know, of, of the bank. So that's an important point because it really means that from the beginning, you know, environment was not, if you want, a kind of side thing that you look at in terms of compliance or whatever, but it was really something, you know, that, you know, the bank was oriented to from, you know, its very, you know, articles of agreement. Uh, why? Because, you know, when uh, the Berlin Wall came down, you know, people saw, you know, some of the very harsh environment, environmental issues that existed in terms of industrial pollution, in terms of soil, you know, degradation, in terms of many uh, issues that existed then. And therefore, there was quite a focus from the beginning, 
in a way uh, on that. In fact, my first job there was to start, you know, uh, what was a what became, if you want, the municipal and environmental um, investment department, right? Which really dealt with, you know, trying to find financing solutions to specific environmental issues and also the financing of cities, right? Um, to deal also, you know, with water issue, public transportation investment. You see, I came back in some way to the origins, you know, with that too. Uh, and also a big element, you know, which is a key topic, you know, uh, on uh, climate finance these days, which is also, you know, how do you attract the private sector uh, in there, right? Because the BRD had very much also this, you know, still has today, you know, a very strong mandate on private sector development. And how do you develop solutions in which you are able to attract to the extent possible, you know, as much private sector involvement and finance uh, as, as, as you can. Yeah, the role of multilateral development banks in, in unlocking private finance is definitely something we, we're going to get to in this in this uh, conversation. I'm fascinated to hear more of your views on that. But first, um, to be quite topical at the moment, we're about 10 days away from COP28 starting. And in fact, when this episode comes out, it will probably be around about the time it has actually it has actually started. I suspect that you, in your capacity as Managing Director in Climate Change and Energy Efficiency at the EBRD, will have attended COPs in the past and, and probably in other capacities too. So it would be really interesting to hear your experience of going to COPs in the past in different capacities. How do you think um, they have evolved over time? And it'd be great to get um, a first-hand experience of, of what it's like to be in the room. Yes. Yeah, indeed, uh, part, um, I would say, of the job, part of the activity, you know, when you're involved, you know, in uh, climate action is indeed, you know, um, attendance, you know, to COPs. And indeed, so I, I think, you know, I probably have attended something that over 10 COPs, you know, over the past 15 years. I would have to say that overall, as a general remark, it's, you know, it is truly an astounding uh, gathering. And I would say almost an increasingly astounding gathering, both in terms of magnitude, right? I think the numbers that are floating at the moment, you know, for COP28 are something north of 70,000 people. I mean, so <laughs> it's not a small number, but also under this number, there is, you know, and probably that's even more important than the number itself, is really the increasing diversity of, of participants, right? So. If you look originally, COPs were really about, you know, governments and, you know, governments negotiating, you know, government to government. You know, that is still, if you want, uh, the core, you know, of what uh, COPs uh, are. But around that, over time, you really had a phenomenal growth of participation, you know, of civil society, of business, you know, industry, finance, you know, uh, cities. Uh, scientists, you know, uh, universities, you know, I mean, it's it's amazing. And that I have to say that over these 15 years that, you know, I've been kind of going, you know, almost every year, you know, to this, that is something that you, you really notice, right? And to give you an example also about these evolutions, that, you know, a lot of it is also about including, you know, people often use this word inclusive, right? Okay, part of this is that. And so, for example, it's interesting to note that COP28, for example, will have for the first time actually a local 
Climate Action Summit, right? I think on the 2nd of December. And that really is trying to reflect the recognition of the very important role of cities, you know, in climate action. So, okay, it's been talked about, there have been events before, but, you know, this is really trying to push, if you want, cities to become really, you know, direct actors uh, in, into that. And maybe as a remark, but again, that is probably not for me to do, uh, but, you know, it would be interesting to see over time how the use of space in COPs has evolved, right? Because I would guess that in the beginning, it was, may have been, I don't know, maybe 90% for the offices of government officials. Nowadays, I don't know what it is, but, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if it is something like 20 or 25%. Right. And the 70 or 75 percent are really about all the exhibitions on technology. It's all about, you know, different initiatives. It's all about different actors in there. So that's to a certain extent, you know, um, I would say what I would call, you know, in terms of evolution, you know, of how COPs have gone. And I think it's always important to look at COPs in terms of these two elements, right, the official element, the so-called negotiating, you know, track, and then everything else that happens, you know, which has really been increasing at a phenomenal rate. The example of cities I find really interesting because the, the, the impression I get is that often in the build-up to COPs, there's a lot of conversation around the, the, the national governments and, and the geopolitics between them. To what extent do you, do you also think it's important to, to get more engagement from non-state actors so you know whether that be at a local level so like cities or or regions but also civil society non-government organizations are you seeing an increased presence at these events from these sorts of actors and, and do you think that's enhancing the the value of the, of the event and the amount that is achieved at them yeah. well i think there you need to look at uh, you know perhaps with a couple of perspectives because um, on one hand, it is absolutely, you know, in my view, correct uh, to say that, uh, you know, the growing involvement, you know, of uh, different types of actors is both absolute necessary, you know, uh, and also is a driver of a lot of initiatives, you know, that come out, you know, from these COPs. So one thing generally that you will see is that, you know, if you look at Glasgow, you know, if you look at Charmeche, you know, you really have a certain pace, you know, of, uh, I would say, generation of new initiatives. Uh, and many of these initiatives uh, often, you know, starting to become, you know, ever more granular, you know, as elements of the transition, you know, go deeper, you know. So what do I mean by this? That, you know, you can say, since, you, you know, we're talking about cities that, you know, at one stage, you may have been talking about, you know, involvement of cities in general, you know, nowadays, okay, you know, you may be talking about, I don't know, buildings energy efficiency, you know, or you will be talking, you know, about very specific, act, you know, actions, you know, related to urban uh, climate action. And within that, you start having, you know, uh, initiatives that come out that can become also increasingly granular. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean when I say initiative that all of this is then implemented and financed. We may go back to that later. Right. But, you know, that's certainly part of, a, I would say, a very creative and a very inclusive process. Now, key question there is obviously then to make a distinction between this and the formal negotiations themselves. Right. Because 
you know, the intersection between these two, it's not really, you know, there, right? Because to a certain extent, obviously, the more initiatives you have, it may give a certain level of comfort, a certain level of support for negotiations. But to a certain extent, the negotiations often, you know, are being developed, you know, in quite a different context and quite a different set of tracks than you have on this initiative. This is why, you know, often I feel, you know, in terms of COPs, you always have at the end of the day a certain kind of dual feeling, right? A feeling on what's happening on the negotiation side and a feeling of what's happening outside the negotiations in terms of these initiatives and all these different actors, you know, that are coming there and taking, you know, decisions. And are you able to give any, any examples of some of the conversations or some of the roles that you've had and been involved with in your previous capacity as managing director of climate change at the EBRD? Yeah, I mean, let's say, of course, for me, I would have to say that uh, in the years I was at uh, the EBRD, which was, you know, until about a couple of years ago, um, you know, Paris, you know, so-called COP21 probably stands out, right? And, uh, you know, I would say there are probably different reasons for standing out. You know, first is because on that one, on the negotiating track, you really had, you know, a major outcome, right? 192 countries agreeing to that frame, you know, with a goal. Okay, that was major, right? Now, you may have all sorts of comments about how Paris is being implemented, you know, the speed, the complexity, etc. But... The simple fact that you got there, in my view, you know, was a very important um, uh, element. The second that related very much to my job is that at the time, you know, multilateral development banks, you know, were put under, I would say, under quite a lot of pressure, you know, to up their game, right? Because obviously the idea at the point is like, okay, we're getting to this agreement, but, you know, how are the multilateral development banks, you know, going to support that? And that included, for example, in particular, you know, a new, uh, more ambitious, you know, a climate finance target, right? And so, for example, okay, a big part of my work was to say, okay, what is a ambitious, but at the same time, not completely outlandish target that the BRD could set to itself? You know, at the time we were doing between 20 and 25%, you know, depending on the years on climate finance, so it took quite a lot of, uh, you know, uh, initiative to essentially, you know, announce, you know, a 40% target, you know, uh, within five years at, at, at the time, right? So that was a second element, I would say, you know, in memory. The third is perhaps one, um, you know, I would say more personal, but by complete coincidence, you know, life is interesting in that sense. I met uh, uh, one of my old history professors from high school, in Paris, who completely by coincidence, I discovered, had been working in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of France, you know, on actually building up that consensus of 192 countries. And so for me, talking to him, it was amazing because I had never really understood, okay, all the homework that goes on on the diplomatic front, you know, to try to bring, you know, such a huge you know, number of countries to agree on something, right? And so that on a personal level was, and perhaps the last one I mentioned since we talk about cities was, uh, you know, the meeting of over 1,000 mayors in the Paris City Hall, 
and again, this is a bit personal anecdote, but I happened to grow up, you know, about uh, 120 meters, you know, from the Paris City Hall. And when I was a kid, you know, I would go in front of there wondering, ah, you know, Josué, when you get older, what are you going to be doing? And for me, it was incredibly meaningful, you know, to suddenly be there, you know, 120 meters from the place I grew up, you know, uh, discussing, you know, defining, you know, how, you know, a bank like EBRD at the time, you know, could develop, you know, urban climate finance in this context of, you know, 1,000 mayors meeting each other on the topic. There's some great stories there. And uh, yeah, your history professor sounds sounds impressive. I actually did history as, a, as an undergraduate degree and uh, your history professor definitely sounds more impressive than some of the ones that I encountered back in the day. And now sort of sticking to the, to the theme of COP, we've looked back at some of the key moments and memories that you have from them. Looking ahead to the one that's taking place in, in Dubai from the 30th of November, along with methane emissions and the question of phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels. It looks like climate finance is going to be one of the big discussion points at this COP. You mentioned the, the commitment to uh, deliver $100 billion a year uh, by 2020, which, which wasn't met. But there's also this reality that it looks as though you, we're going to need somewhere between 2 to $2.8 trillion of climate finance per year by 2030. And you've devoted a large part of your career towards climate finance and Last year at COP27, you were a key contributor to the publication of the Finance for Climate Action Report, which was published by the high-level expert group on climate finance, which I understand is uh, co-chaired by Vera Songwei and uh, Nicholas Stern. Uh, the report is a really interesting read, and I'm actually going to put it in the uh, the episode show notes for any listeners who are interested in, in reading up more on this topic and covering various aspects of climate finance. My first question on, on the report specifically It'd be great if you could briefly talk us through the, the, the aims and the recommendations that are set out in the Finance for Climate Action Report. Yeah, well, that's a big question. But for, perhaps before we plunge there, I, I think it may be good, you know, uh, for those that will be listening, you know, to this podcast, just to perhaps spend, you know, a, a minute on why finance is at the core, you know, of the discussion. And I would say, you know, there is a reason that's very obvious, but sometimes not thought about, which is really that, you know, without finance, there is no transition, you know, to a low carbon climate resilient economy. And actually, there is no impact on the ground, you know, either in terms of mitigation uh, or adaptation. So what we have out there is a lot of plans, lots of commitments, lots of initiatives, lots of enthusiasm, lots of concerns, etc. But, you know, if you don't have the finance, it's very difficult you know, to move, you know, climate action forward. You mentioned the 100 billion. That's certainly one element of, of that. And there, what you see is that it's not just actually a question of money. It's also a question of trust. It's also a question of building, if you want, the relationship, you know, between countries, you know, to really be able to move, you know, to uh, global action. And perhaps the last comment I would make also that even though there is this huge emphasis on, on finance per se, it's very important also to emphasize that policies play a big role. If you have the right policies, actually, you may not need any form of subsidies, right? Uh, but the problem is that, okay, we don't have you know, the right policies, and therefore, 
you know, you need kind of derivatives, you know, if I could put, you know, to do that. Other aspects is also you cannot think of climate in isolation, and therefore you cannot think of climate finance in isolation of development finance, of poverty reduction, of issues of, of equity, for example. So I just wanted to make that point first, right, because uh, we can then go, you know, into more detail of what the report says. But I think it's important to mention, you know, why is climate finance, you know, at such, um, you know, a, a level of focus at the moment. So what does the report really do? And that is really, I would say, the first phase report, right? Uh, we are currently working on the second uh, one, but on the first uh, report and what was provided in Sharm el-Sheikh and what has to a certain extent been very useful in the year since COP27 at uh, uh, Sharm el-Sheikh is, is the following. So first, the report put really, I would say, a very, very strong emphasis on the nature and the extent of the transformation that is required, you know, to shift, you know, to a net zero climate resilient economy, right? And the report really focuses on that in emerging markets, you know, and developing economies. The second thing that the report does is that, you know, there is a plethora of numbers around, right? Uh, the number of reports that have come out, you know, with how many trillions you have, you know, need, et cetera, you know, is significant. This report really has tried, you know, to take, you know, the best estimates possible and put them, you know, as the frame, you know, in terms of saying, you know, what, what is needed. Right. And therefore, you know, this notion of scaling and estimating the scale is important. And I think the third uh, very important element, you know, and contribution of this report is really outlining a financing strategy to address these investment requirements. Right. So it is really looking at what are the specific sources of finance that could make a difference here, looking at their role, looking at how they interact. You know, together, right? So that's, uh, I would say, is really the, the content of what the first um, phase report was. And one thing that certainly has been very motivating to all those that have worked on this report is to note how it has become actually a reference, you know, in discussions that have happened since COP27. So, for example, you had the summit in Paris, for example, on the, you know, new global financial pact. Well, you know, two key authors, you know, including Lord Stern, were there right at the beginning to essentially outline, you know, this is the order of magnitude and this is the way, you know, that it could be uh, handled. But also, you know, the G20, the upcoming COP28, you know, all are to a certain extent, you know, making reference to that. And that's very important, right? Because hopefully what it means is we can... You know, uh, because I grew up in France, so I'm a bit Cartesian, you know, I always feel, you know, if you have a very complicated problem, which we clearly have, you know, with climate action, divide it in as many pieces as you start having a set of manageable issues, right? And this report essentially sets a frame precisely to do that. Thanks, Josue, for a really useful overview of the importance of, of finance to tackling the, cl the climate crisis and also the overview of the of the report. I think my personal reflections reading through the report is that it really brings out the scale of the imminent increase in energy demand that we're going to see in emerging markets and 
developing countries, the number that stands out for me is that 770 million people still lack access to electricity. So you get this sense that we're going to have this huge increase in energy demand. So we're going to need huge increases in investment in zero carbon energy, but also grid capacity expansion. We're going to need more sophisticated uh, energy storage systems in emerging markets. And then also you've got the, the, the fact that lots of these emerging markets and developing countries hold some of the nature-based carbon sinks, which need to be protected, which need to be restored. But at the same time, you know, we, we're coming out of the pandemic and we're amidst high interest rates and inflation, which means that you've got a situation where I think the report states that one third of all developing countries and two thirds of low income countries are at high risk of debt distress. And there's a graph in the report showing the change over time in terms of sovereign credit ratings of, of, of certain emerging markets and developing countries. And a lot of them have, have fallen dramatically in credit rating. So my first question for you so that we can start delving into this report is how do we square this circle of, of climate finance needing to ramp up dramatically over the next decade whilst having this situation where many creditors are probably not going to be willing to, to lend without imposing a high cost of capital to account for creditworthiness and to account for risk? Yeah, so perhaps um, as I did uh, just a few minutes ago with climate, you know, with finance, why finance? Perhaps just before I answer your question, a, a little reminder of why the importance of emerging markets and developing economies. So I would say, again, it's not comprehensive, but quickly, one, these include, you know, some of the most affected countries currently, you know, by climate change, right? And therefore, for example, the adaptation uh, requirements, you know, are really rising, you know, very fast, right? And you can see this that in Sharm el-Sheikh, for example, even in Glasgow, you really have this rising pressure, you know, on adaptation, you know, do more, you know, to protect against, you know, the current impacts and future impacts of uh, climate change. Uh, at the same time, as you correctly mentioned, I mean, many of these countries are actually also the ones that have been most affected by the impact of the pandemic and by also, you know, the current geopolitical context because, you know, which has implications, for example, you know, on food prices, you know, energy prices. You also mentioned, you know, uh, interest rates. All of these are headwinds, you know, further headwinds to countries already in a difficult, you know, situation. And as you may know, you know, as a result of all these things, you know, for the first time in decades, you know, in several countries, actually extreme poverty has actually risen, right? And that situations, as you correctly mentioned, you know, have deteriorated. You know, you mentioned that distress, you know, in, in, in several cases. With also, I would say, uh, severely constrained local finance, you know, budgets, right? So the final point here also of why emerging markets and developed economies is that, you know, this is where the bulk of infrastructure investment, you know, will, you know, you mentioned access to energy, but again, you know, you also have urbanization, you know, you look at the urbanization uh, rates in Africa, it's incredible, you know, the rate at which it's going. So all of this will have huge implications, you know, in terms of, you know, water networks, you know, uh, uh, all kinds, you know, of, of uh, infrastructure uh, requirements. So that's, I would say, the rationale, you know, in a way, uh, for looking at this, because if the transition of these countries 
you know, is not in line or at least closer in line, you know, with Paris Agreement goal, there is no way, you know, to actually, you know, get anywhere close, you know, to the goals, you know, of the Paris Agreement. Now, then to your question of how do you square the circle, right? So how do you square the circle is, you know, through what I would call a combination, you know, of different financing sources. You know, what are they, right? So let me start with domestic resources. And you may look at me and say, you know, how domestic resources when you just talked about debt distress and about constraint, you know, uh, domestic. But the point is that, you know, if you look, for example, at the large emerging markets, you know, uh, already, you know, the bulk of the financing, you know, for renewable energy, you know, has really come, you know, if you look, okay, there is the example of China, right? But even if you look at other countries, you know, that uh, China, you will see that actually local finance, you know, is a key driver of what's happening. Because of the, you know, discussions and the nature of the discussion on climate finance, people have tended to focus a lot just on the external, right? But that, you know, in my view is, you know, is a big mistake, right? Because you're not going to solve, you know, the situation of these countries just by focusing on external. And there is a very, very, very important point here, which is if you look at climate projects, right? Very rare is the climate project that generates foreign exchange. Right. You may have, okay, a renewable energy plant near a border, you know, that can sell a bit thing. But on it all, you know, I always say, you know, if you take a public uh, transport, you know, like a bus in, a, you know, a, in any country, you're not going to pay, you know, in dollars and euros, you know, uh, for, you know, the local ticket price. Right. You, you know, I was just in Morocco. Okay. You need six dirhams to take the tram. That's it. Right. So. That is a big argument also for that, because you see, if countries load themselves with foreign exchange denominated debt, you know, they expose themselves, you know, to big foreign exchange risks, right? And that applies not only to countries, but to any borrower of that. So that's the first point, you know. Now, clearly there, we don't have the time to go into everything that's needed, you know, to try to you know, strengthen domestic resource mobilization. But certainly, you know, one has to do with public finances, you know, with taxes, you know, with tax collection, and also with priorities in the expenditures, you know, of governments. You know, that's the public side. On the private side, I would say at least two elements to look at. One is that, you know, several developing, you know, particularly emerging markets, okay, they already have, you know, large pension you know, uh, money, for example, or they actually have, you know, um, um, how do you say, uh, markets, you know, stock markets that exist. So, okay, uh, and this has started, you know, how can you develop green bonds, for example, denominated in local currency? Okay, so these are all elements in terms of trying to bring up, you know, the uh, supply, if you want, of local currency, you know, for a climate project. Final one on the local is local banks. You know, you know, often people talk about green financing, you know, how do you green the banking system? You know, there is a lot of work that's going on now. You know, there is, you know, this uh, um, coalition, for example, of central banks, you know, that is working, you know, on these topics. This, you know, hopefully leads, 
precisely to that kind of greening of banking sectors in different countries. So that's the local domestic side. And then if you look at the external, well, you have probably three categories of finance you can think about. You can think about external private, right? But there, obviously, that's the big potential source of finance, but you have to address a lot of issues in terms of investment climate, in terms of risk, you know, of many of these countries. And that's where you get, you know, to that discussion about concessional finance, about blended finance, about risk mitigation instrument in terms of, you know, essentially having a risk return equation in which, you know, the private sector really comes in. And that's how you bring in two, the two other elements. One, the multilateral development banks, which can be in a way, you know, the integrators of this, you know, those that will do the work in terms of the policy, support governments, you know, in uh, terms of investment climate, you know, improvement, in terms of providing some risk mitigation instruments that will catalyze, you know, the private sector. And finally, you have essentially official concessional finance, you know, from developed countries, right? So that's very much, you know, the 100 billion question, right? That, you know, can provide anything from, you know, I would say concessional loans all the way to grants, because in many areas that you're talking about, you will still have a need, you know, for these sources of concessional finance. Pretty interesting what you say about the, the interface and the interactions between mobilizing domestic resources as well as international resources in unlocking increased financing. I wanted to go back to something you were saying about the role of multilateral development banks, because obviously that is a really big part of, of your career. And reading the, the chapter in the report which you which you led on, the thing that really struck me is something that you were actually saying is that these these multilateral development banks more and more are going to almost these mediators between a lot of these actors you know the, the report talks about their role in working with the public sector on public investments like electricity grids and public transport bringing together the local development banking system which you also mentioned just now but also interestingly the report talks about multilateral development banks' potential role in almost playing an advisory function to emerging markets and developing countries on their climate strategies and their climate policies. What for you makes multilateral development banks well placed to take on this role almost as a cohesive force and also as an advisory body? And are you starting to see these changes at some of, for example, some of your former your former workplaces like the World Bank and the EBRD? Well, I would say uh, perhaps the way I would answer your question there is the following. Uh, and I would answer first with a little comment. You know, I'm not sure one should describe, you know, the role of the multilateral, uh, you know, development banks as quote unquote advisory, because to a large extent, you know, the most fundamental point in this is that, you know, it is the countries themselves, you know, that need to drive, you know, the process. And in that sense, you know, indeed, MDBs, you know, can, you know, provide support in policy formulation. They can provide support in capacity building. They can provide support to develop investment programs, sector policies, etc. Okay, but I think this point uh, uh, on first and foremost, the countries need to drive. You know, the countries need to be engaged and committed. That is the fundamental base upon which you know MDBs can commit, 
right? Now, obviously, there can be an interface because, you know, MDBs can, you know, identify, for example, okay, you know, what are the issues and, you know, have the discussion with the countries, but the ultimate decision, you know, on what to do, on what the priorities are, et cetera, needs to be, you know, country uh, determined. So that's just, you know, a remark. Now, when you ask the question, why MDBs? Well, a lot of it has to do actually with their very constitution, you know, because what is an MDB? Well, you know, it's if you look at the board of a multilateral development bank, is essentially a number of shareholders, which are all countries, right? Some of them are countries in a way that are not countries of operation, right? And others are, you know, countries that are countries of operation. That group, you see, is what makes MDBs so interesting, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, the MDBs are the, you know, owned, you know, by both countries, you know, that are, you know, countries of operation and also by uh, countries, you know, that essentially contribute the capital and also pursue, you know, I would say the goals, you know, of, for example, poverty reduction or, you know, green, you know, uh, objectives, you know, if, if that is the case. So that's what positions, if you want, you know, the multilateral development in such an interesting position, right? Because, you know, they have, you know, this country dialogue, right? They have this relationship, you know, that is in a way quite unique, right? But what I want to just say uh, here is that that does not mean, you know, that MDBs, for example, in terms of policy or whatever, you know, can basically determine the policy. They can do the policy analysis for decision, you know, by you know countries, you know, to implement. Or, for example, when we talk about private sector, okay, um, MDBs can make the assessment of what the issues are in a particular investment climate, you know, to say, okay, you know, uh, whatever, you know, if you have uh, 242, you know, uh, steps, you know, to register a company. Okay, uh, that may be an issue in terms of promotion, you know, of uh, new uh, clean tech companies in that country, you see. So these are the type of things where indeed the analytical part, you know, can be done. I think the, the final thing also is MDBs can play a very strong role of convening, right, of uh, essentially bringing together, you know, the different actors that will be necessary, you know, to address a particular issue. You see, and that configuration will actually change quite a lot in relation to the issue you're dealing with. You see, because my view would be that, you know, if you if a country says, for example, renewable energy expansion is our key priority. And imagine it's a large emerging market country. I would assume that the role of the MDB there will be OK, policy. You know, what are the policies that will support that? It will probably be some support to grid expansion because that generally remains public. But I would assume that the bulk, you know, of the actual investment will be, you know, private sector in on the generation part. Now, if you move and the country says no, my key priority is adaptation. I would think that it will the MD will play quite a different role because there, you know, the importance of concessional finance will become much more important. The majority of finance is likely to be public. So it's going to be okay. You know, how do you, you know, mobilize, 
you know, the public finance to support, you know, the adaptation approach of a particular country, etc. You see, so that role of convening and that role in a way of advising, working with the country, you know, to see, okay, you know, what mix, what strategy to follow, what potential involvement of private sector, you know, uh, in, in that is where MDBs come in. Very interesting. It sounds like MDBs are going to be absolutely fundamental to uh, to, to the finance strategy that you and colleagues started to shape in the report. My final question on the report is, what are the next steps for the high-level expert group on climate finance? How will you build from the recommendations that were made in the report uh, that, that we've just been discussing? Well, um, how do you say, the follow-up report um, is actually being finalised uh, as we speak, you know, right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it will be, you know, launched um, essentially right, you know, by the time, you know, of COP28 uh, and will be actually an object, you know, of presentation and discussion there. I would say um, at this stage, it takes on from the frame that was set, you know, in the first report. And really what it does is that it goes within each of the categories you know, of uh, actions into specific sets of proposals, you know, essentially almost for each source of uh, finance, right? So uh, the way, you know, we're seeing it right now is really that, you know, it's going to uh, include, you know, a lot of very specific actions, you know, that hopefully then can be taken on by the different actors, whether public, whether the local government, you know, whether you know, the MDBs, uh, whether, you know, the governments, you know, in, um, I would say, in countries of operation or whether it's going to be, you know, in uh, capitals in developed countries, you know, for example, you know, on the concessional uh, finance uh, element. Okay. So essentially, it's, it's going to be, I would say, uh, going in the next level of detail of what was outlined, you know, in the first report. I look forward to, to seeing the follow-up report and uh, we can certainly share that with listeners. My, my final question for you today is obviously you've had an incredibly successful career. This podcast is run by uh, students on the Imperial College Business School's Climate Change Management and Finance programme. A, a lot of us are going to be thinking about next steps in our career. What, what advice would you have for the student cohort in terms of thinking about next steps? Okay, perhaps I will answer now uh, the first, you know, the, your question with a, a little adjustment, which is the following, and actually it links to my advice. So I would not, uh, I do not consider really my career in terms of success. Uh, I really look much more at my career in terms of meaning, you know, in terms of saying, okay, you know, how meaningful are the things that I've done over all these years, right? And that's, in a way, um, you know, the unit of measure that I would, you know, recommend, you know, uh, for, your, you know, uh, you and your colleagues to take, right? Um, and in that sense, I must say that it's probably difficult to find a topic, you know, uh, uh, that would have perhaps more potential meaning than, you know, engagement in, you know, climate action, you know, for reasons that I don't need 
you know, to detail here, because probably each of you, particularly if you chose, you know, to be a student in CCMF, it already reflects, you know, to a certain extent, certainly at least uh, an intuition, you know, that this is where you may find this uh, meaning. And perhaps two uh, observations there. One is uh, one of timing, in the sense that, you know, you are getting, you know, to address this topic at an absolutely crucial time. And again, I don't need to describe that to you, right? Uh, and number two, that I think in terms of opportunity, you know, this is an incredible time, you know, to engage uh, in that. So perhaps my answer there to your question is one, focus on meaning to yourself, right? And hopefully find, you know, the best opportunity that corresponds, you know, to your interest, because one of the challenges, but also one of the beauties of uh, working on climate is just how broad the topic is. You know, you can really address this topic from so many angles, right? And therefore, finding your angle, shifting your angle over time, and maybe that's a nice way to conclude because it goes back a bit, you know, to the beginning when I described to you a bit my own path. It was not a linear path, but when I look backwards, you know, it has, at least for me, both uh, meaning, uh, variety, right, uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, some uh, impact that makes a difference, including, you know, uh, teaching, you know, the uh, climate finance module of the CCMF program. I think those are really motivating bits of advice to, to end on, and I personally am really looking forward to your climate finance module next term, as I'm sure plenty of the CCMF listeners are as well. But yeah, just to say thank you so much for your time, Just Ray. It's been it's been fascinating. It's been insightful, and uh, yeah, look forward to to speaking again soon. Great, thank you. Thanks for listening to Green Minds. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to hear more insights from those leading the fight against climate change, you can subscribe to the Imperial Business Podcast on Spotify to receive notifications of new episodes. That's Imperial Business Podcast. And if you have any suggestions for episodes or know the perfect guest for us to interview, you can contact us at podcast.greenminds at gmail.com. That's podcast.greenminds at gmail.com.